Do you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lipman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham. This is Pastor Trey Graham in Texas with my good friend Rabbi Dove Lipman at his home in Bet Shemesh in the land of Israel. Rabbi Lipman, how are you, sir? Thank you so much. And now, Pastor, when you talk about my home, you can you can picture it. Yes, uh, my wife and I had the beautiful privilege of being with you and your family for Shabbat last week, and it was a wonderful visit. We were we were so happy to have you, and uh, we always like having guests, and so always special. But there was something really precious about uh, giving you and your wife a taste of what uh, Shabbat experience is like here in Israel, and uh, in general uh, in home Jewish homes uh, throughout the world. And uh, we really were delighted to have you. Well, thank you again for the invitation. It was wonderful to be with you in your home and. As we talk about the calendar, it is the month of March, soon to be the month of April, and that means on April 1st is Easter Sunday, and soon after that comes Passover. And while we're going to talk about this week's Torah portion in just a moment, as you guys are getting ready for Passover, there's a whole set of preparations ready for that important event. Passover is a holiday which requires tremendous amounts of preparation, both uh, certainly on a physical level and hopefully on a spiritual level uh, as well. First uh, order of business, and you cannot wait uh, for the last day uh, for this, is to clean our homes, uh, not spring cleaning, although many people <laughs> might turn it into that, but we have to make sure that there is no leavened bread, what we call chametz, uh, in our homes. And therefore, especially people who have young children or pets, uh, there's a tremendous amount of work. You go through every shelf, you go through every floor, you go through under every bed, under every couch and remove cushions and just make sure that there's no unleavened bread because there's a prohibition on Passover not just not to eat the uh, leavened bread, but to uh, also not even own it. And therefore, there's a long process uh, that's involved. So everyone around is doing their cleaning. Everyone is starting to do their purchasing of the food for their Seder, which we'll talk about maybe as we get closer to Passover in two weeks. And there's an incredibly important message, though, in this cleaning process. Uh, the reason why we're not allowed to have the leavened bread, the, the deeper message, is bread and the cracker-type food that we eat on Passover, the matzah, they are made of the exact same ingredients. It's the water, it's the flour, it's every, everything is the same. The only difference is that this bread does not have time to rise. It doesn't have time to be puffed up. And the message, the symbolism, is about ego, is for us to recognize that we're just basic human beings. We don't have to puff, puff ourselves up. So during these weeks when we're cleaning, we're also supposed to be searching ourselves to see where are there flaws in our character, where we're not subjugating ourselves to God, but we're viewing ourselves as having worth on our own and trying to remove that. So as we remove the physical bread from our homes and the physical chametz, we also try to remove those spiritual uh, contaminators as well. So it starts a few weeks before, and it's an incredibly part of it, especially in Israel, where it's just all around you. And we will talk more about Passover and the 
details of the Seder meal in future conversations. I will remind our Christian listeners that when Jesus took his last supper the night before he went to the cross, that was a Seder meal. The Jewish man, who we believe is the Son of God, was with his Jewish friends, the disciples, taking the Passover meal, the Seder meal. And we're going to talk about that more in detail as we go forward. Rabbi, I believe that there's a secondary teaching to the no leaven and the bread not rising, and that is when Passover was created, it was as a result of the Exodus leaving Egypt and slavery in such a hurry that you didn't have time to wait for the bread to rise. So there was a reminder of the immediacy of leaving after the plagues as well, correct? That's correct. The actual connection to the story is the fact, as the Bible says specifically, that they had to leave quickly, immediately. God was, the moment for the redemption had come, and they had to leave without their bread having time to rise. And so we reenact that, eating that special bread on Passover. It's also poor man's bread, as we call it, and it reminds us of what their slavery was like. It reminds us uh, that there are people who are still in need, and our responsibility uh, try to help them. So certainly uh, many, many symbolisms that evolve. And actually, uh, on Saturday on the Shabbat in synagogue, we will read a special portion, in addition to the regular weekly portion, from Exodus 12, with all the commandments about leading up to the holiday of, of Passover, uh, beginning with uh, the new moon of the Hebrew month, which starts this, this Shabbat uh, of Nisan, and it's all about renewal, it's all about, and it relates to the spring, that's why the holiday is called the holiday of the spring, and our calendar always adjusts itself to make sure uh, that it's in, in, in the spring, even though we follow lunar calendar, and all those symbolisms. So what you just touched upon in terms of the Exodus experience, and the fact that you even mentioned you know, people having a Seder a few thousand years ago, this is part of the power of, of what's happening, to know that we're experiencing and preparations for Passover, and we'll sit down and have our Seder meal on Passover night the same way it's been done for thousands of years. It's, it's difficult sometimes to explain what it feels like to know that you're part of that kind of chain of tradition, where with all the changes in the world and all that's going on, we're still able to continue that religious experience and those customs. Well, when you say chain of tradition, that's where I say we as Christians, we as followers of Jesus, we believe to be Messiah. That's where we fit into the equation because Jesus was a Jew who lived in the land of Israel. And as I said a moment ago, celebrated the Passover every year of his life on the earth, especially the night before he was crucified with his disciples in the upper room. And so this is a perfect example of when we talk about the Hebrew roots of our faith, the Hebrew connection that we have to the Jewish people is identified by the fact that the Messiah for Christians, Jesus of Nazareth, celebrated the Seder meal himself. And we take of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, and that is a symbolism and a reminder of the Seder meal itself, and we believe the sacrifice of Jesus. So when you say it's the continuation of tradition, it's not only for the Jews, it's also for the Christians. To know that for all people of faith, there's a way uh, to connect to this. It's really important you know, to find things that we share. I will tell you that the entire concept of the Seder, which obviously is focusing on the Jewish people and their exodus from Egypt, but the message behind it of people in general leaving the confines of that which binds them spiritually and freeing themselves to be servants of God, uh, that's something which is absolutely universal. So let's talk about this week's Torah portion, because you mentioned that you will have an extra reading from Exodus 12 in the synagogue on Saturday. 
but the regular Torah portion of the week will be read as well. And that takes us into the book of Leviticus, chapters 1 through 5. The weekly portion is called Vayikra, and it means in Hebrew, and he called. And it comes from Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. And we've called that the tabernacle or the mishkan, the Hebrew name for it. And so, Rabbi, before we even get into the portion, Leviticus relates to the Levites, and they are part of the priestly system. They come from the tribe of Levi or Levi, but distinguish for us a priest and a Levite, please. Absolutely. There was a very distinct hierarchy uh, in terms of how things worked, both in the tabernacle and in the temple. Anybody who was from the children of Aaron, they were the priests. And they were the ones who actually interacted with the sacrifices. They were the ones who really performed most of the worship that was done, and certainly the sacrificial worship that was done in the temple on the tabernacle. But anybody who descended from the tribe of Levi, uh, we call them the Levium, they also had jobs in the temple. They were the ones who sang in the temple. They were the ones who played musical instruments in the temple, and they were the ones who stood at the doors and were basically the doormen uh, as people would come in to the, to the temple. So they all had specific jobs, and the system was set up that none of these families and tribes, none of them had to work to support themselves, but the people of Israel were responsible through the tithing, through their donations, even through the sacrifices to support uh, these families, and they were dedicated to focusing on the temple and service uh, service of God. And that's the way uh, the system uh, was very much set up. Today we have remnants of that with the children of Aaron getting the first portion every week. It's divided up into seven parts, and if one person is called up for each one of those seven parts. They're called up first to the Torah when we read the weekly portion. They, in Israel, they give us blessings, the, the priestly blessings they give us during the services. And the Levites get the second portion of the reading. They get called up second, and they also wash the hands of the priests at the synagogue. So you have a remnant of it today, just to remind us of what we yearn for, uh, but there was very much a very specific system where everybody had their role to play. So I often explain the book of Leviticus as like the instruction manual for the Levites. Is that an accurate description? Yes, but, but there's also a lot of instructions for everyone, and that's why sometimes it can be a little bit misleading. Uh, but yes, a, a huge amount of the commands here are very much related to the priests first and foremost, and then also to the uh, Levites as well. So let's begin to talk about it. When it says, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, verse 2 says, speak to the sons of Israel and say, when any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, and then it goes into these instructions. There is an expectation here that God speaks to the leaders, in this case Moses, and calls people to make sacrifice. And we'll get into the details of a bull and a ram and a goat and a lamb and all of those things. But the idea that the Lord wants us to bring offerings to him, to make a sacrifice to him, that's not a new concept. That is an eternal concept. Absolutely. The message of the sacrifices is one in which teaches us of giving of ourselves. That was the whole concept behind it. In fact, as you read uh, the verses, even the very, very beginning of the, of the portion that talks about in verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4, leaning their hands against the animal. Uh, the idea was to feel that you are giving yourself to God. So I can't 
kill myself and we're not allowed to do that. We give an animal instead, but it's the act of giving of yourself to God. That's an act which can be done for atonement if people needed to atone for their sins. There were also offerings that were done just because people felt like getting closer to God and, and giving of themselves to God. And, and it, it, But the concept behind it is getting close to God. The Hebrew word for sacrifice is korban. And korban comes from the root of karov, which means to be close. It wasn't just some physical act that we do and we're separated from it. The entire concept was if we give of ourselves to God, that's how we get close to God. And that was the entire message of all of these uh, sacrifices, each person in their own way bringing what they could. But the bottom line was you're giving of yourself for God, and that's what brings you close to God. Verse number three in chapter one, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. To read about the Levitical offerings, I was taught these characteristics. There are four. Every offering was to be number one, ceremonially clean. Number two, usable for common food. Number three, a domesticated animal. And number four, costly in relation to the wealth of the person. And this author says, in short, God required the highest quality possible in line with the means of the worshiper. And Rabbi, we've talked about this in previous conversations. There's a phrase that sometimes Christians use that when we're not generous to the Lord, we just give him a tip and it doesn't actually cost me anything. It's not an actual sacrifice. It's just a tip. But if it is something that costs me something. If it is my very best animal, that's going to affect, in a sense, of breeding. That's going to mean that I'm not including in the breeding process my best animal. Then I'm going to have to trust God to bring forth quality animals even though I'm giving up my best animal. If I give my money to the Lord's work, if I give my time, if I give my energy to the Lord's work, it's something that ought to be costly to us because of the immense cost that God gave to us for Christians. We believe that's the death of Jesus. So talk about these qualities of a Levitical offering, ceremonially clean, usable for common food, a domesticated animal, and costly to us. So I'm going to focus on the last part when you said costly to us, because that's also where the giving comes in. The idea was not, oh, let me just pay some lip service to God, and whatever comes my way, I'll send over there. But it was very, very deliberate. People, and actually, if you look at the first chapters of this week's portion, we start out with offerings of cattle. Then we have offerings of sheep. Then we have offerings of birds. Then we have meal offerings that weren't animals at all. And all the commentaries, and the Bible even alludes to it specifically, talk about it depended on the wealth of the person. A person who was well-off, they had to bring cattle because, yeah, that cost it and it has to cost you. Uh, but you're supposed to bring from the best that you can. The next level of those who can only afford sheep, next can only afford birds. But then even the one who cannot afford an animal whatsoever – they're still expected to give something to God, and they bring a meal offering, as we see in the beginning of chapter 2. And uh, the commentaries even say, uh, if you look at the beginning of chapter 2, it uses the word nefesh in Hebrew, which means soul. Uh, that's not used for the other sacrifices. God realizes that the person who, person who is poor, who brings a meal offering, is truly giving of, them soul, of their soul. This is the ultimate cost. They barely have bread, and they have to give this meal offering to God. They're giving of the most basic element, giving of their own food. And who knows what they'll have? They still give that to God. That's the, that's the bottom line. Everyone's thinking to themselves, what? 
what can I give? Not that will be easy and expedient and comfortable, but actually to be a little bit uncomfortable and to make me feel like, wow, I'm really giving something of myself. And that's uh, the important element uh, that we're supposed to learn from the sacrifice. You know, that person who wakes up one day and says, you know, should I go to synagogue or not? Should I go to church or not? Ugh, maybe I'll just take this one day and, and, and be at home. That step of actually going is the step of that sacrifice where you, you've given of yourself and fought against the inclination not to. The same thing with giving of our funds. No one wants to give up of their money to, to others. We all want it for ourselves. But when you do it and it's costly and it's uncomfortable, uh, that's where it's the most meaningful. And I have to imagine this is a, a value with which, which both of our faiths uh, very much share. We all agree with the idea that if it costs me nothing, then it's not worth anything to me. And using money is the easy example when we give our tithes and offerings to the church or to the synagogue. The easy way to understand it is if I have X dollars and I give part of that to the Lord's work, I don't have as much of that money left. So how am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to trust? And so if I really have faith that God provides, if I really have faith that God meets my needs, then I know he can meet my needs. And this is how sometimes churches explain it, Rabbi, is if we give of our tithe of 10% of our money, we sometimes say that God can do more for us with our 90% of the money than we could do for ourselves with 100% of the money because we trust that he can provide. Exactly, exactly. And that's, we actually go a step further and we say, based on a verse later on in Deuteronomy, where it says to give a tenth, to give a tithe, it says aser ta'aser twice. And without getting into the Hebrew of it, uh, we're taught that if a person does give a tithe, they can actually be blessed as a result. When you give of yourself, God actually provides even more so. You just have to have that faith to recognize that God's the one who provides, then of course you'll be rewarded for what you actually give. And for our Christian audience, we sometimes teach at our church that we are to tithe out of our faith. And we created this acronym, F-A-I-T-H, we tithe out of our faith, our finances, our abilities, our influence, our time, and the hope of Jesus Christ. So that is how we teach tithing out of our faith. Something which uh, we also talk about, by the way, uh, Passover time, just to bring it back to what we were talking about before, uh, the idea that making sure that everyone around us has the opportunity to worship and to be part of the Passover experience. People don't have food, people don't have the means to always be on the lookout for that. And that's something which, again, in both of our faiths, you know, we, there are things that cost, there are things that uh, meals and, and trips and pilgrimages and other things and, and church experiences and synagogue experiences, to always be looking out not just for other people's physical needs, but perhaps they need help in order to accomplish uh, their spiritual needs as well. And that's also a giving of ourselves and a bonding together with others and making sure that they can reach the spiritual levels that they need to reach. Rabbi, I'd like to discuss Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. I think it's a very interesting verse. It says, Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. And one of the Christian commentaries explains that salt was not destructible by fire. So your burnt offering, your animal meat, was burnt up in the burnt offering, but the salt remained as a symbol of God's eternal covenant, that it never goes away. It continues on and on, even after the sacrifice has been made. Talk to us. What do you think this verse 13, when it says the salt of the covenant of your God? 
So it's interesting. We have, we have different symbols that are in place in terms of the salt, because as you pointed out, Pastor, the salt is clearly uh, an essential part of the sacrifice and the offering, and it mentions it very specifically. So there are a few things. Some people say, uh, one commentary says very simply uh, that the salt was necessary because uh, we didn't want to offer a sacrifice that lacks flavor, and just a very simple physical explanation that the salt adds taste to the food. That's, that's one level. But then we actually, in our tradition, have a historical lesson regarding the salt. If you remember, going back to Genesis chapter 19, we had the story of Sodom and Lot's wife. And the city of Sodom was destroyed because of their horrible sins. And it says that she turned around and she turned into a pillar of salt. And some of the commentaries uh, talk about that salt the meaning behind that was it was a, it was a, the people of Sodom of Sodom. It was illegal to help any other people, and Lot was actually attacked by the people because he wanted to help other people, and 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 just giving someone else of the most basic thing. You know, people say they call their neighbor, "Do you have salt? Do you have something I can borrow?" It's the most basic element that we and, and inexpensive uh, that we can give it to other people, and the salting of the sacrifice reminds us that we have to have a society uh, that's based on looking out for one another. Sort of we're going against, you know, what happened uh, in Sodom. We're, we're going to be very clear that, that we want to be giving people, just like we're giving to God, to be given, giving to other people uh, as well. And that's part of uh, the symbolism that we see. There's certainly an element of the salt also helping to get rid of the blood, which was a whole other dimension as well. But but it's literally called, uh, we call it a Brit Melach. It's a covenant with God that's made uh, with the salt. It, it makes us think deeper uh, when you bring in the sacrifice. Why is the salt there? What is the message behind it? To recognize, yes, of course, on the one hand, I want to make sure that God, you know, so to speak, we're giving them something that tastes good and it's an appropriate offering, but also the message that it has within the Jewish faith in terms of what salt actually uh, represents. What in uh, Christianity does, does the role of salt play? Our Christian listeners will remember what's called the Sermon on the Mount, and what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 is that the followers of Jesus are to be the salt of the earth. And we use similar teachings that we're to bring flavor to the world, the flavor of God. Salt was used as a preservative, so meat or fish did not spoil. So we're to be a preservative for the world. Also, salt makes people thirsty. So if we live a life that honors God, people will be thirsty for the things of God and will want to know God more. So salt is something we're supposed to be, the salt of the earth. And I will connect another verse from the book of Numbers, chapter 18, verse 19. It's related to Leviticus. This verse says, All the offerings of the holy gifts, which the sons of Israel offer to the Lord, I have given to you and your sons and your daughters with you as a perpetual allotment. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord to you and your descendants with you. So both Old Testament and New Testament, the idea of salt is a powerful image of covenant with God. Absolutely, and I think that uh, those are all messages which we can certainly uh, share, and the whole idea of salt being a preservative as well, I believe, is mentioned in, in some of our commentaries. So uh, remarkable to see that crossover in terms of the understanding of that symbolism. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 3, and we're going to talk more about the different offerings. And remember, there's a burnt offering, and there's a grain offering, and there's a peace offering, which is sometimes called a fellowship offering. And when you get to 
Leviticus chapter 3, starting in verse 17, it says, It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations and all your dwellings. You shall not eat any fat or any blood. And I have a question about what does this mean in terms of your living out the kosher requirements or the offering requirements, but then I'll make a connection with Christianity. So tell us about this verse 317 of Leviticus. Sure. One of the most important things is that um, uh, people should not have thought or think that the commandments are only relevant when we have a temple and when everything is the way it ideally should be. There is a concept that there are principles that are contained here which have to be on forever. So the idea of not eating the forbidden fast and not eating the blood, these are principal elements of our diet and applies everywhere and at uh, any time. In all generations, in all places where you live, it's not even bound just to Israel, lest people make that mistake as well. And the question is, what are the reasons for that? What are the reasons why we're not supposed to be eating uh, these fats and the, and the blood? And, and there are certainly elements and messages of, again, the fats representing uh, ego and, and giving ourselves uh, too much in terms of delicacy. And the idea of, yes, we can enjoy the physical world, but it shouldn't become gluttonous and it shouldn't be just about our own enjoyment. And certainly when it comes to the blood, to recognize that blood is a sign of life and to be cautious in terms of what we're ingesting and, and what that does to ourselves. Uh, these are things which are eternal. And, and, the, and the Bible goes adamantly to emphasize that, yes, these were rules in the temple, but that it applies in all times and in all places. When we talk about the blood in a sacrificial system for Christians, of course, we connect it to the cross, to the crucifixion of Jesus. And one of the verses that we read and learn this from is Colossians chapter 1 verse 20 having made peace through the blood of his cross one of the ways that we believe we have forgiveness of sin is through the offering of the blood of Jesus which is connected to the offering of the blood of the animals here that we're learning about in the book of Leviticus and so when people who follow Jesus describe him as the lamb of God Lasay ha Elohim, that is a connection to these verses throughout the New Testament that talk about the blood of Christ is what forgives us of our sins. So I want our Christian audience to see connections between what we understand as New Testament teachings have Old Testament origins behind them. And so, Rabbi, when you talk about the different types of sacrifices, when you get to Leviticus chapter 4, and you look at verse 1, and then verse 2, it says, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, and commits any of them, if the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. And what I'd like us to discuss for a moment is the idea of intentional versus unintentional sin. Intentional disobedience to the Lord and unintentional disobedience to the Lord. What do you think this lesson is here? Well, actually, for us, it's very interesting. If you look at all the laws and the sacrifices in the temple, most of the situations where people are bringing sacrifices, at least for atonement, it's actually for what we call accidental. What do I, what do I mean by that? And this is a little bit of background here. The courts, the Jewish courts, had the power to punish, and including capital punishment, 
But that was only in the case where the moment before a person did the sin, the moment before two witnesses came along and said, do not do this sin or you will be punished for it, and the person acknowledges the warning and does it anyway. That makes it an intentional sin. Other than that, we always say the person didn't really have an absolute determination that they wanted to sin, and we put it in this category of what we call shogeg, which is uh, it was done uh, accidentally. And, but there is a difference in punishment between someone who does something with determination. Here, I am coming to rebel. It's something which we call mezid in Hebrew, uh, versus someone who, it was a momentary loss of thought. Uh, they weren't focused. They had a momentary desire, momentary passion. And there's a difference. God understands that we're human beings, and we still have to go through an atonement process, but it's not the same as someone who, with full thought and with full intention, uh, goes forward and sins. And this section, which you, which you raised, Pastor, it goes even further and talks about leaders and the accountability which leaders have if they sin, and they have an entire people that's following them. They're held to an even higher standard, and more is demanded of them. So there's different levels on a, on a common person level of accidental or on purpose. And then you go a step further, and we see that the leaders are held to a higher standard as well. When we talk about intentional sin, that is easily understandable, that I decide I'm going to tell a lie. I decide I'm going to cheat a person in a business deal. I decide to be unfaithful to a spouse. That is something that is premeditated, to use the legal term. Unintentional sin is sometimes used with the cliche, caught off guard. But I believe one of the lessons here is I will be more likely to be caught off guard. I will be more likely to be involved in unintentional sin if my life is not spiritually focused, if my life is not biblically focused. In other words, it's easier to get off track when you're not being careful about your spiritual walk. Absolutely. And, and this is where doing things to make sure that we stay focused, having things in our lives which help us remain focused, uh, that's why it's so critical. You can't simply be cruising and assume that everything will be okay. We have to be proactive uh, to make sure that we are focused and to make sure that we can stay on the right path. When we talk about sacrifices and we ask for the way that forgiveness happens, Rabbi, it might not be familiar to you, but our Christian audience will understand we believe forgiveness of sin comes through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that we mentioned a moment ago, that Jesus took the penalty of our sin on the cross. But I ask you, what is the Jewish teaching about forgiveness of sin? You don't have a temple. You're not bringing a bull or a lamb to the altar. So how do you pray for and receive forgiveness of sin? So for us, it's a very intense process. The process has a few steps to it. The first step is, is fully acknowledging that which we have done wrong, uh, recognizing the sin, uh, confessing the sin in our faith, confessing to God, confessing with words, uh, but confessing to God. And then it's a determination, it's regret, which comes through that confession as well. It's real, heartfelt, it has to be real. And then a conviction that I'm not going to do it again. These are very important steps. We say three times a day in our prayers, Slach lanu avinu kichatanu, forgive me 
our Father, referring to God, for I have sinned. Uh, we're constantly trying to beg for forgiveness, but that forgiveness only comes if it is combined together with a change. It's not just lip service. It's not just here's the sacrifice. It's not just here's the prayer. It's not just here's the confession. It has to be something real that goes through a person. And we go even a step further. We say that everybody has to be punished for every sin. There's no such thing as not being punished. But if you feel pain, heartbreak over what you've done wrong, that can be that punishment, so to speak, constructive punishment. That's the cleansing which you need to be able to be pure uh, from the sin. So therefore, it's a very personal, individual, intense process uh, that's filled with different stages in order to be able to achieve atonement within the Jewish faith. As we finish our conversation today about this week's Torah portion called Vayikra, the Hebrew phrase that means, and he called, it covers Leviticus chapters 1 through 5. We've talked a lot about sacrifices. We've given some specific details because as we've said in previous conversations, I believe that God is a God of detail. And when we focus on specifics, when we focus on exact words that we say or actions that we take, that is giving God honor because it shows that we care, we're paying attention to the details. But there's also the bigger picture about relationship with the Lord and covenant and forgiveness of sin and relationship with the Heavenly Father. So, Rabbi, wrap it up for us today. What lessons should we take away, Christians and Jews, from this first section of the book of Leviticus? The idea of sacrifices, the idea of recognizing that getting close to God doesn't happen unless we put forth effort, give of ourselves, each person according to the best that they can do, to recognize that this is not simply laws that are related to some ancient temple, but very relevant to our lives today, and recognizing that on a daily basis, just like they were bringing these offerings on a daily basis, on a daily basis, we have to be people who are giving of ourselves to get close to God, giving ourselves to others to help us get close to God. And uh, like we said before about it being costly, about it being something which is a sacrifice, because that's what ultimately uh, brings us close. And, and certainly the, the choices that we make matter, just like all of these laws and all of these details impacted how it worked in the temple, uh, to not be flippant about it, to not be, okay, whatever it is, I'll find something, but to actually sit and think about it and have a determined approach uh, to recognize how I want to uh, get close to God and how I want to uh, give of myself. Our conversation today has covered Leviticus chapters 1 through 5, and as always, it's a privilege to study the Word of God, to hear from my rabbi friend, Dove Lippman. Thank you for your time. Always great to visit with you, and Shabbat Shalom, my friend. Thank you, Pastor. Always enjoyable, and Shabbat Shalom to you and to all the listeners. Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to himself this week.